Hello and welcome to a history of Alexander Remastered. Episode 19, Mutiny on the Opus. So, as we enter the spring of 324 BC, Alexander's reign of terror was ending. He paid off the debts of his troops. How nice. But this did not halt the rage that was building up inside them. You see, they had refused to march into India for many reasons. Mostly that they didn't want to go on what felt like a suicide mission. The next revolt was based on something Alexander did. His growing Orientalism. We had discussed this while Alexander was crossing Asia. Clitus did not like Alexander's Persian habits, while the troops were generally content to let Alexander do what he wanted to do. But their opinions had changed. Alexander had continued becoming more and more oriental, and now wore Median clothes. He heavily approved that the governor of Persia had adopted Persian dress and language. Alexander had incorporated Asiatic troops into his army, and trained 30,000 young Asians in Macedonian warfare. He called them his successors. This was a way of reducing his dependence on the Macedonians for fighting. Alexander had recently taken a second wife, Barsani, also called Stratera, who was the daughter of Darius. At the same time as this wedding, he married a great number of his officers to Persian wives. These officers complied, but they did not approve. So Alexander made his way from Susa, where the weddings had taken place, up the Tigris to Opus. I shall quote Arian to give you the best idea of what was going on, and understand how, while they may have been furious with him, Alexander's troops still loved him. When he arrived at Opus, he collected the Macedonians and announced that he intended to discharge from the army those who were useless for military service, either from age or from being maimed in the limbs, and he said that he would send them back to their own abodes. He also promised to give those who went back as much extra reward as would make them special objects of envy to those at home and arouse in the other Macedonians the wish to share in similar dangers and labours. Alexander said this, no doubt, for the purpose of pleasing the Macedonians, but, on the contrary, they were, not without reason, offended by the speech which he delivered, thinking that now they were despised by him and deemed to be quite useless for military service. Indeed, throughout the whole of this expedition, they had been offended by many other things, for his adoption of the Persian dress, thereby exhibiting his contempt for their opinion, often caused them grief, as did also his accounting the foreign soldiers called Epigoni in the Macedonian style, and the mixing of the alien horsemen among the ranks of the companions. Therefore, they could not remain silent and control themselves, but urged him to dismiss all of them from his army, and they advised him to prosecute the war in company with his father, deriding Ammon by this remark. When Alexander heard this, for at the time he was more hasty in temper than heretofore, and no longer, as of old, 
indulgent to the Macedonians from having a retinue of foreign attendants. Leaping down from the platform with his officers around him, he ordered the most conspicuous of men who would try to stir up the multitude to sedition to be arrested. He himself pointed out that with his hand to the shield-bearing guards, those whom they were to arrest, to the number of thirteen, and he ordered these to be led away to execution. When the rest, stricken by terror, became silent, he mounted the platform again and spoke as follows. The speech which I am about to deliver will not be for the purpose of checking your start homewards, for, as so far as I am concerned, you may depart whenever you wish, but for the purpose of making you understand when you take yourselves off what kind of men you have been to us who have conferred such benefits upon you. In the first place, as is reasonable, I shall begin my speech from my father Philip, for he found you vagabonds and destitute of means, most of you clad in hides, feeding a few sheep up the mountain sides, for the protection of which you had to fight with small success against Illyrians, Tribulians, and the border Thracians. Instead of the hides, he gave you cloaks to wear, and from the mountains he led you down into the plains, and made you capable of fighting the neighbouring barbarians, so that you were no longer compelled to preserve yourselves by trusting rather to the inaccessible strongholds than to your own valour. He made you colonists of cities which he adorned with useful laws and customs, and from being slaves and subjects, he made you rulers over those very barbarians by whom you yourselves, as well as your property, were previously liable to be carried off or ravaged. He also added the greater part of Thrace to Macedonia, and by seizing the most conveniently situated places on the sea coast, he spread abundance over the land from commerce, and made the working of the mines a secure employment. He made you rulers over the Thessalians, of whom you had formerly been in mortal fear, and by humbling the nation of the Phocians, he rendered the avenue into Greece broad and easy for you, instead of being narrow and difficult. The Athenians and Thebans, who were always lying in wait to attack Macedonia, he humbled to such a degree, I also then rendering him my personal aid in the campaign, that instead of paying tribute to the former and being vassals to the latter, those states, in their return, procure security to themselves by our assistance. He penetrated into the Peloponnese, and, after regulating its affairs, was publicly declared commander-in-chief of all the rest of Greece in the expedition against the Persians, adding this glory not more to himself than to the commonwealth of the Macedonians. These were the advantages which accrued to you from my father Philip, great indeed if looked at by themselves, but small if compared with those you have obtained from me. For, although I inherited from my father only a few gold and silver goblets, and there were not even sixty talents in the treasury, and though I found myself charged with a debt of five hundred talents, owing by Philip, and I obliged myself to borrow eight hundred talents in addition to these, I started from the country which could not decently support you, and forthwith laid open to you the passage of the Hellespont, though at that time 
the Persians held the sovereignty of the sea. Having overpowered the satraps of Darius with my cavalry, I added to your empire the whole of Ionia, the whole of Aeolus, both Phrygias and Lydia. I took Miletus by siege. All the other places I gained by voluntary surrender. I granted to you the privilege of approaching the wealth found in them. The riches of Egypt and Cyrene, which I acquired without fighting a battle, have come to you. Colossyria, Palestine and Mesopotamia are your property. Babylon, Bactria and Susa are yours. The wealth of the Lydians, the treasures of the Persians and the riches of the Indians are yours and so is the external sea. You are viceroys, you are generals, you are captains. What then have I reserved to myself after all these labours except this purple robe and this diadem? I have appropriated nothing myself, nor can anyone point out my treasures except these possessions of yours or the things which I am guarding on your behalf. Individually, however, I have no motive to guard them, since I feed on the same fare as you do, and only take the same amount of sleep. Nay, do I not think that my fare is as good as that of those among you who live luxuriously? And I know that I often sit up at night to watch for you, that you may be able to sleep. But someone may say that while you endured toil and fatigue, I have acquired these things as your leader, without my myself sharing the toil and fatigue. But who is there among you who knows that he has endured greater toil than me, than I have for him? Come now, whoever of you has wounds, let him strip and show them and I will show mine in turn, for there is no part of my body, in front at any rate, remaining free from wounds, nor is there any kind of weapon used either for close combat or for hurling at the enemy, the traces of which I do not bear upon my person. For I have been wounded with the sword in close fight, I have been shot with arrows, and I have been struck with missiles projected from engines of war and though oftentimes I have been hit with stones or bolts of wood for the sake of your lives, your glory, and your wealth, I am still leading you as conquerors over all the land and sea, all rivers, mountains, and plains. I have celebrated your weddings with my own, and the children of many of you will be akin to my children. Moreover, I have liquidated of all those who incurred them, debts, without inquiring too closely for what purpose they were contracted, though you receive such high pay and carry off so much booty whenever there is booty to be got after a siege. Most of you have golden crowns, the eternal memorials of your valour and of the honour you receive from me. Whoever has been killed has met with a glorious end and has been honoured with a special burial. Brazen statues of most of the slain have been erected at home, and their parents are held in honour, being released from all public service and from taxation. But no one of you has ever been killed in flight under my leadership. And now I was intending to send back those of you who are unfit for service, objects of envy to those at home. But since you all wish to depart, depart all of you, go back and report at home that your king, Alexander, the conqueror of the Persian, Medes, Bactrians, and Sacrians, 
the man who has subjugated the Uxians, the Arakosians, and the Dragians, who has acquired the rule of the Parthians, Chorasmians, and Icanians, as far as the Caspian Sea, who has marched over the Caucasus, through the Caspian Gates, who has crossed the rivers Oxus and Tanais, and the Indus besides, which has never been crossed by anyone else except Dionysus, who has also crossed the Hydaspes, Aesines, and Hydrotes. He would have crossed the Hyphasis if he had not shrunk back with alarm, who has penetrated into the great sea by both mouths of the Indus, who has marched through the desert of Gadrosia, where no one ever before marched with an army, who, on his route, acquired possession of Carmania and the land of the Retians, in addition to his other conquests, his fleet having in the meantime already sailed around the coast of the sea which extends from India to Persia. Report that when you returned to Susa, you deserted him and went away, handing him over to the protection of conquered foreigners. Such news will indeed assure you of praise upon earth and reward in heaven. Out of my sight! Having thus spoken, he leaped down quickly from the platform and entered the palace, where he paid no attention to the decoration of his person, nor was any of his companions admitted to see him. Not even on the morrow was any one of them admitted to an audience, but on the third day he summoned the select Persians within, and among them he distributed the commands of the brigades, and made the rule that only those whom he proclaimed his kinsmen should have the honour of saluting him with a kiss. But the Macedonians, who heard the speech, were thoroughly astonished at the moment, and remained there in silence near the platform. Nor, when he retired, did any of them accompany the king, except his personal companions and the bodyguards. Though they remained, most of them had nothing to do or say, and yet they were unwilling to retire. But when news was reported to them about the Persians and Medes, that the military commands were being given to Persians, that the foreign soldiers were being selected and divided into companies, that a Persian foot guard, Persian foot companions, a Persian regiment of men with silver shields, as well as the cavalry companions, and another royal guard of cavalry, distinct from these, were being called by the Macedonian names. They were no longer able to restrain themselves, but running in a body to the palace, they cast their weapons there in front of the gates as a sign of supplication to the king. Standing in front of the gates, they shouted, beseeching to be allowed to enter, and saying that they were willing to surrender the men who had been the instigators of the disturbance on that occasion, and those who had begun the clamour. They also declared they would not retire from the gates, either day or night, unless Alexander would take some pity on them. When he was informed of this, he came out without delay, and seeing them lying on the ground in humble guise, and hearing most of them lamenting with loud voice, tears began to flow also from his own eyes. He made an effort to say something to them, but they continued their importunate entreaties. At length, one of them, Kalinis by name, a man conspicuous both for his age, and because he was a captain of the companion cavalry, spoke as follows. O king, what grieves the Macedonians is that you have already made some of the Persians kinsmen to yourself, and that Persians are called Alexander's kinsmen, 
and have the honour of saluting you with a kiss. And whereas none of the Macedonians have yet enjoyed this honour. Then Alexander, interrupting him, said, But all of you, without exception, I consider my kinsmen, and so from this time I shall call you. When he had said this, Kalinese advanced and saluted him with a kiss, and so did all those who wished to salute him. Then they took up their weapons and returned to the camp, shouting and singing a song of thanksgiving. After this, Alexander offered sacrifice to the gods, to whom it was his custom to sacrifice, and gave a public banquet, over which he himself presided, with the Macedonians sitting around him, and next to them the Persians, after whom came the men of the other nations, preferred in honour for their personal rank, or for some such meritorious action. The king and his guests drew wine from the same bowl, and poured out the same libations, both the Grecian prophets and the Magians commencing the ceremony. He prayed for other blessings, and especially that harmony and community of rule might exist between Macedonians and Persians. The common account is that those who took part in this banquet were 9,000 in number, that all of them poured out one libation, and after it sang a song of thanksgiving. See Arian, Book 7, Chapters 8 through 11. While we must be wary of exaggeration, and that speeches in ancient texts are of dubious reliability, what can we learn from this episode? Alexander was becoming increasingly mentally unstable, sulking for days whenever things did not go his way. Not behaviour you would expect from a king. We will see this develop more later on, with the death of Hephaestion. We can also see just how important Alexander was to his troops. They really did love him. Whatever you may think of the man, he certainly was a charismatic figure. After this, Graterus was to take the troops back to Macedonia and replace Antipater, who was to come to Alexander with a fresh draft of men. If you enjoyed the show, you can check us out online. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Vine. I am at the History of Pod on there, just as I am on Twitter, and there you can check out the History of Hannibal 2013 Halloween Spooktacular and a studio tour. If you are not a Vine sort of person, they can both be found on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash the History of Podcast. I'm afraid that there shall be no episode next week. I'm making a bad habit of this, but I am going to explore the remains of the Roman legionary force at Chester on Wednesday afternoon, the normal release time. So, I shall see you in two weeks, when we get to Alexander's death. <laughs>